Today on The Black Goat, we talk about the double meaning of integrity in scientific practice. What is the connection between good research and good ethics? And a letter about people who publish off of other people's open data. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And we're here after a hiatus. We skipped an episode um, mm-hmm. because uh, Samin, our world traveler, uh, was in a place with uh, bad internet. But we're really excited to be back and, yeah. uh, uh, and with you all. And thanks, everybody, for, for sticking with us through our uh, skipped episode. Or maybe you're not. Maybe. We've now lost. We're just recording right now. I have no idea if anyone's going to listen to this. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's over. Yeah, that was it. That uh, was... You put us down, black goats. Uh, I don't think people noticed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was kind of wondering, like, you know, because we just very, we were very quiet about skipping the episode. We didn't make a big hullabaloo out of it. Um, and I was like, is anyone going to notice? And well, I it was the one our... time I had a friend going through a hard thing and I was like, what can I do to help? And she was like, oh, keep putting out Black Goat episodes. They really helped me. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, about that. <laughs> you yeah, can, you gonna... can just blame blame me and Alexa, though. That wasn't your fault. No, it was entirely It was totally fault. Simeon's fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're not responsible for the Wi-Fi I can blame Wi-Fi my dad because he picked the hotel in Istanbul. So there you go. Fault. That's it. Blame someone who's not even on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, no, he's been on the podcast, he hasn't has, he? Briefly, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. All right, we're blaming our guest co-host. Then mm-hmm. there we go. <laughs> That's what we need. Like, uh, we need to have like a fourth person that. Yeah, yeah. Like, wasn't that nice? (laughs) Scapegoats. That was good. (laughs) Applications open on Twitter. Be our scapegoat. Yeah, that sounds pretty terrible. so Alexa, uh, you you recently discovered or not discovered, but came across a, a brand new way of assessing personality that you're like really excited about. Yeah. Okay. So like, <laughs> really excited about. So like a couple <laughs> of months ago, somebody mentioned the Enneagram test test to me, and I had never heard about it before. And I feel like since this happened like 16 different people have asked me what my Enneagram is. So like, it must be like a thing right now in Tuscaloosa. It was and a really of... big in the nineties. My parents are really into it. That sounds about right. I feel like the <laughs> Tuscaloosa is like 25 years <laughs> behind California. Um, but yeah, so people have seemed to be like really into it. And um, yeah, a couple of my friends have been like interpreting all of their personal issues through their Enneagram types. And I've also like, done the Enneagram test and found out what my type is. Um, what is it so, a number? It's a number, right? It's a number. Yeah. And I think there are nine numbers, but there's like, it's kind of like, like horoscopes where you can, right or something like yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. It's like horoscopes where you can find out what your like rising moon is or something <laughs> like that. It's like, you're, you're like a, a number wing, another number. And then there's like, yeah, there's, they go a lot farther than um, what your actual number is. So anyways, I did my Enneagram. And I'm a little like, I'm a little displeased with my type. So I'm a number two, which is called the helper. And it sounds sort of nice, but it's basically like somebody who, um, like, yeah, just feels the need to be needed by other people. And so is like nice to other people with the ulterior motive of like make having them make you feel good about yourself. Um, and yeah, one thing that I think is interesting about the Enneagram is that people seem to be really into it, but as far as I've seen, like the descriptions are not like particularly flattering. So like even mine, which is like it, you could write a description of someone called the helper that is like pretty nice, but it's like, I wonder if people like to feel like they have a cross to bear. And so their personality is their cross to bear. That is a really good point. I think. Um, yeah, I do get this sense from like the people that I've talked to about it, that there's like something that feels like meaningful about being told like your big flaw or something. Um, it's also 
consistent with like my perception that everybody I know seems to think they're really high on neuroticism, except for you, Alexa. And I feel like that's uh, like, yeah, I feel like it's something that's like people think that that explains something or it's like a burden that they're carrying around that and that might be accurate for many people. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I remember in when I was in grad school, like the the adult attachment, like the the social psychological version of attachment theory was like really big and people and, and you know, people would talk about like, oh, I'm a preoccupied, I'm a whatever. And nobody would ever say they were secure. Like if you, you know, you're just like mm-hmm. a bunch of grad students sit around like, oh, did you read that shaver paper? Yeah, yeah, I'm a this or whatever. Um, and it was like, dude, okay, the, I mean, now we know they're not types, right? But, you know, at the time there are types. It's like, dude, the, the base rates are like, most people are secure. Why are you sitting around saying you're like dismissing or preoccupied or whatever? But it, yeah, it's just like, it makes you a more interesting person. Like you have this, uh, you know, like, like people, like nobody writes novels about people who are just happy and everything's going well, right? Like it's right. more narratively interesting. If, if Although I love watching sitcoms about, about that. <laughs> I love sitcoms where everyone's happy and nice to each other and stuff. Uh huh. That's true. Yeah. I've uh, been watching Brooklyn Nine Nine recently. I mean, they're not always happy, but they're pretty nice to each other. Mm-hmm. That, oh well, that's true. They're nice to each other, but they all have their like quirks and flaws. Yeah, and true. I love that show too. That's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's so good. It's funny about the Enneagram though, like the the um, and when we talked about the Myers Briggs on a previous one, it's like the Myers Briggs has this goal of not making any one type sound better than the other. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the way they accomplished that was to make them all sound good. And it sounds like the Enneagram, the way they accomplished making all the types sound equally evaluative is like they made sure to come up with some flaws for everybody. Right. Which actually, yeah, I mean, now now that you guys are talking about what that motivation could be, it does seem like it's more satisfying if you're trying to, like, understand, like, challenges or problems that you're dealing with to have, like, a test tell you, like, okay, well, this is what's weird about your personality, and maybe this is, like, the source of your problems. Yeah. Um, and it's slightly optimistic about, like, so they also describe, you know, what your type looks like in its healthiest form. And so I guess it's trying to, like, explain how you can take your personality and shape it in the way that's, like, the most productive given your shortcomings or something. So we maybe that is nice. We could put all those tests out of business by just, like, promoting existential philosophy that existence is suffering. You don't need an explanation <laughs> for why your relationships are hard. Or, or right, but you need you need to feel special by making making it feel like it's your particular brand of suffering makes yeah. you, like, really cool and different and uh, interesting. That's, right? that's a funny thing about, I think, any, like, sort of categorical personality tests, too. So, so one of my friends took this test and she got a type or whatever, and then... I read the type and I was like, I had a moment of being impressed. I was like, wow, that is exactly how you describe yourself. And then I was like, yeah, because you got that type because you described yourself that way on the test. <laughs> um, but also like there, it, there does is something like nice about seeing a description that jives with like how you describe yourself and also like thinking that other people describe themselves that way, I guess. Um, but it feels a lot different to like, have it like packaged as a type than it does to just like say I'm this kind of person and then you know maybe other people feel that way too yeah yeah there's something about like I mean it is really interesting I think you know in psychology we have a, a little research on this but not a lot on like aside from sort of the validity of personality descriptions like what makes them sort of compelling as Mm-hmm. feedback or mm-hmm. as description right which like is I've sort read, of funny because one or two papers on that yeah 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 there's a little bit but it's it's like i think uh um i feel like in personality psychology we're skeptical of that because often what if the at least the, the the things that become popular are packaging things in ways that are at odds with how we scientifically think things really are and so personality psychologists, I think, are wary of doing that. And then from social psychology, it's like only the packaging or the classic social psychology, mm-hmm. right? The like 60s and 70s social psychology. It's, it's, it's nothing. Or... It's a package with nothing in between inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there hasn't been a tradition. So, yeah, I agree. There's like some papers, but there hasn't been like a community yeah. or a tradition in psychology. I wonder that, if IO psych must have yeah. that, right? Because like they study mm-hmm. feedback and how to give right. feedback and how to. Maybe, yeah. That would be interesting to know if people, but they, they don't, they're all about like equations and <laughs> no, there's boring some, 70 there's variable some regressions like, The 360 degree feedback literature has okay. some okay. stuff oh, about yeah. like moderators of 
what makes feedback more likely to be received and not. Okay. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But even, I mean, even that, so, so that's about like, how do you deliver valid feedback? I guess, yeah, maybe I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> it's like, like something about what makes the feedback narratively compelling, mm-hmm. um, like descriptions of persons narratively compelling when the person is the recipient of the description about themselves. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Should we just end there? I don't know what I'm talking about. It's a short episode. We, we, we got to our important conclusion. Everyone's like, no, Sanjay, we got to that a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, well, should we do our letter? Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, dear Goats, recently there has been a discussion about the ethics and practicalities of sharing data. Some on Twitter have strongly argued against it, calling those who use other people's data, data leeches. What are your thoughts on open data? What, in your opinions, are the reasons for and against? I'm strongly for it, though I appreciate concerns about being able to identify participants. Kind regards, Anonymous. Um, So I think this letter asks some very broad questions, like what are your thoughts on open data, which probably we could talk about for a really long time. But one thing that I thought was interesting about this question was the the question about um, whether people who want to use other people's data are data leeches. So is there like something um, that is not respectable or something about um, the goal of like finding other people's data and using that for your own purposes? And um, do we all have some responsibility to be like producing data or would it be fine to just be like a person who is looking for existing data and only analyzing that? I think this topic is interesting for me because it's like a really good marker of progress on on these issues. So at least my own reaction, like in 2011-12, I think I would have been like pretty resistant to the idea of if someone else wanted to make a career out of publishing off of data that collected by people like me. Um, although I I hope I wouldn't have been like completely closed off to the idea, but I think I would, it would have taken me some time to wrap my head around it. And I did feel possessive of my data and things like that. And I, I think I've changed a lot more on this topic maybe than almost anything else. It's interesting mm-hmm. to watch like the field change on, on these issues, but there's still this idea, yeah, that there's something less rigorous or less scientific, or it's like takes less skill to be the kind of researcher that uses other people's data, which like, I guess on some level is true. Any, if there's any part of the research process that you can skip or be exempt from having to do, then in some sense that takes less work than someone yeah, who has right. to literally do every step of the process, but almost nobody does literally every step. I mean, for one thing, nobody writes their own software to analyze their data. We use someone mm-hmm. else's software so, as a trivial example, but there are a lot of ways in which many of us, like people who do lab studies are skipping the step about generalizing to ecologically valid contexts or things like that. So I'm not sure we treat this step as so much more essential than we treat a lot of other steps. And that part is like, I think, what I no longer think is valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think if you're working with open data, right, it's a maybe it's a breadth of skills versus depth of skills, right? Because if you're downloading an open data set, you can't just run a couple of t tests that the you know an experimenter would have run, right? Like you're competing with other people who have access to the data. So in order to for that to be a contribution, you you probably have to have be bringing something else to the table, whether it's a more sophisticated analysis, whether it's a way of connecting this data to other data, new idea, um, new idea, something like that. So, so I feel like it, it's like, there's gotta be like, and I think maybe that's some of the disrespect comes about is like people, people, everybody's doing statistics up to some point. And so people think, well, I did statistics on my data. Somebody else is going to come along and the only thing they're going to do is do statistics. And it's like, well, yeah, but they're going to do things you don't understand. (laughs) You know, they're going to, or they're going to be adding value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like to me, the, the, the divide on this issue feels like it's, it's a division between whether you're thinking about the system as it is or the system as it ought to be. And of course, and some, I think some of the change in attitudes is because the system has changed. Right. But if you're, if you're bought into the traditional system where the way you get credit is through authorship on the data that you've produced, then this does feel like 
or I, you know, I can see how this can feel like cheating that system. But if you step back and you say, like, what what is science supposed to be about? It's supposed to be about producing knowledge. And then what we're supposed to do is create, you know, this is like Merton's organized skepticism, right? We're supposed to create organizations and institutions that serve what science is supposed to be doing. Then you say, well, that that old system of creating credit is flawed Mm -hmm. because it doesn't give the people that produce the data but didn't do the analyses, it doesn't give them credit. And it gives the same kind of credit to the people that are downloading the open data and producing new knowledge and it's like, okay, then the answer is that if if data is available to everybody, then we're going to have more scientific progress than if we're hoarding data. And so then the answer is how do we create a system that makes that work for everybody? Right. And then to me, the problem goes away. And so, so when people like defend the whole data leeches idea, often it's just like, yeah, you're just, you know, the status quo is water and you're a fish and you can't tell that you're like swimming in it. Um, and, and, and within that environment that your arguments make sense, but, but you're not questioning your assumptions. Yeah, right. I was going to say something really similar, which is that like, yeah, I think if you accept everything about the system as it is, the idea of like one person using another person's data raises these questions about like deservingness, like have you really like earned authorship on a paper if you didn't collect the data? And then I think also the like effort heuristic comes into play where it's like, you know, if you make some discovery, but you didn't put a lot of effort into it, do you deserve less credit for that or whatever? But then I think when you sort of like take a step back and ask the broader question, like, should we have a system where everybody has to collect their own data and everybody is possessive of that, that seems obviously at odds with the ultimate goal of learning as much as possible. Um, so, I think, yeah, I think the best counter argument to like op- open data from this perspective, like the best argument about the about potential negative consequences of these data leeches is that it could disincentivize collecting hard to collect data if like we don't figure out a system to reward the data collectors. Yeah, I think that's important. That people stop collecting those kinds of data sets because the the priority you get and the privileged access to it is gone, which was one of the main incentives to collect that kind of data. Mm -hmm. I don't actually think that's true. I think that the incentive to collect that kind of data is the discoveries you make off of it before other people have access to it. I think, you know, even if all we got from our really intensive hard to collect data sets was the first like two or three papers, that would still be really valuable. And, you know, for the research questions I want to ask, for example, I couldn't just start doing MTurk studies. And so even if I no longer had much of an advantage over other people to use my data first, I think I would still continue to collect hard to collect data. But again, yeah, that's just a problem that we need to solve, not like something in the Yeah. And I mean, I, I think the good news is like there are people, there have already been steps toward that and people are thinking about how to do even more, right? So like Chris Gorgaleski, I mean, a bunch of people have talked about this, but Chris Gorgaleski has a nice paper, which I can post in the show notes about sort of data papers and how they could fit into the, specifically into the incentives and evaluation ecosystem. Um, There is a journal now, the Journal of Open Data and Psychology, and there are data journals in, in other fields as well. So there are actual places where you can, not just putting a, data set in a, you know, in a downloadable archive, but to actually you have a data paper that has a DOI that's citable. I think the thing we next need to do past that is to figure out, okay, now you've got a thing that can be cited, so you have the mechanism, now we have to get like tenure and promotion committees to actually weigh that. And so, you know, there's some ideas I've seen floated, like having people do annotated CVs for evaluation that would give you an opportunity to say like, in the case of a data paper, like here's this data paper and I can give you some context for how there, you know, here are the ways it has furthered the field. It's It's been, you know, an essential piece of these papers that I wasn't an author on, but they were discoveries that were enabled because of me. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think that to me, that's the, like, I think we're now getting better and better mechanisms. We can give DOIs to data sets. So the me- people have, and people have done a lot of good work on that. And the the sort of like now folding that into incentive and evaluation systems is the next piece. And then so so like when people say these people are data leeches and this shouldn't be part of science, that's where I'm like, you're not seeing the reality. When people say, look, I'd love to share my data, 
but I'm worried about X, Y, and Z because of the system as it exists today, I have much more sympathy for that. And there, there I'm like, well, I hope you're willing to be out on ahead of things a little bit, but I also hope that pe- the rest of us are willing to work to create a system where that where you won't feel put in that dilemma anymore. Yeah, I also mm-hmm. think it's one of those things like pre-registration and many other things where most of the time if you try it, you realize that your worries aren't going to come true. So mm-hmm. like even when you do have other people use your data, it's a lot more gratifying than I than you anticipated, I think, and not, there's mm-hmm. a lot fewer negative consequences than you worried right. about. Yeah, probably like the 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 rare negatives are going to get outsized attention, right? There's going to be someone's going to, you know, make a big stink about having been scooped or about somebody having used their data to reach a conclusion that they think is terrible or whatever. And we're going to everyone's going to focus on those rare instances and they're not even going to notice, much less talk about the like 98% of the time where it just works fine. Mhm. Yeah, right. I have one more question for you guys about this. So I've heard people say that um, that as a field, we've generated so much data that like we could stop collecting data right now and just spend time analyzing that data and be like productive for quite a while. Would you guys agree with that? Or do you think that we still need to be collecting a lot of data? It depends what you mean by as a field. I think some parts mm. of the field have collected too shitty of data to rely on the data that exists and we just yeah. need to collect higher quality data and i think there's also some for confirmatory stuff i know sanjay you don't like that word but for like when you want to be able to test whether you can predict what's going to happen there's limitations to using existing data especially if right. you know something about the data set so there are going to be times right, right. when you're like i need a blank slate i need to be able to say things ahead of time without the chance that i might be influenced by something i already know about the data so I'd say for those yeah. two reasons, we can't just rely on existing data. Yeah. yeah I, I would add a third, which is that there are um, topics and people that are underrepresented in the data as it exists today. Um, and like we may have a lot of data on some people. I think that goes in the people, shitty data category. That, <laughs> there, I, I agree. Great. Yeah, I would, I would write that's the, the shitty data is, yeah, not just small and noisy, but also underrepresenting people yeah that right. I, I i'm totally fine considering that a form of shittiness <laughs> shittiness yeah, so is I think a broad that, category <laughs> yeah yeah so i think the literal version of the argument uh is yeah i might not agree with but i think the spirit of it is a really good one which is like we we should be looking at existing data and i think there are some areas where there's good existing data that people could be making progress on and that if we if people felt like they would be rewarded for, for doing that more, they might be doing more. Of it's it, also a good so. way to think about it. Like if, I, if I'm going to go through the trouble of collecting new data, what am I going to add that's not already in existing data sets? So things like if I'm able to sample a population that hasn't been sampled very much before, that's a really good reason to not rely on existing data and collect new data. But I think it, we should be thinking about it that way, especially an intensive data collection project. Like Think about, okay, well, besides just copying what's already been done and providing another small kind of shitty data set, what can I add? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I did want to add just briefly the we, we focus on the data leach issue and the, the sort of professional stuff. Um, the, the letter did mention concerns about being able to identify participants. I think that's too big to get into, but I'll put a, there's a really nice paper by Michelle Meyer that talks about re-identification and some of the ethical issues around that that I'll put in the show notes, um, because I think that's, uh, I assign that paper in my classes. I've suggested it to colleagues. I've read it multiple times. It's a great paper, and it it sort of talks about those issues. Mm -hmm. Cool. And maybe, maybe at some point we should do that as a topic or maybe another letter or something because that I, I think that's interesting but yeah it's too much for today mm-hmm. it'd be cool in the context of a letter to do it with a specific case which could yes is a good segue hint hint <laughs> listeners hint hint uh if you if you have a letter for us yeah we 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 particularly like uh like specific uh like actual things you're dealing with and so if you have something that you'd like us to read and and a particular thing that happened to you or thing you're facing um, we'd, and you, you're interested in sharing that with us for us to talk about, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us, letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Of course, we're interested in other, if you have just thoughts about the podcast or, or anything else, we're always interested in hearing from people. 
Um, we're on Twitter at BlackGoatPod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. Um, and we're on the web at www.theblackcoatpodcast.com. When I mentioned Instagram, it reminded me, I'm really sad. I've posted some goat selfies on our on our Instagram, um, and the, the goat selfies are always taken at this farm just outside of Eugene where we go for, um, to, to, they have a pumpkin patch. We go to get our pumpkins every year, and they just shut down. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do the, like, Halloween thing, so I have to find a new place around Eugene to take goat <laughs> selfies. That's sad. I know. My, my goat selfie plays right away. You should just get a goat. Uh, that's, that's not a bad idea. If I could, like, get a big fence in our backyard and mm-hmm. it could just, like, eat all of our brush and whatever, that would be nice. Yeah. Maybe I should get a goat. Do it for the Instagram. That, <laughs> and then it that's can just be a our general scapegoat. life principle. <laughs> <laughs> Or what was the the thing we tweeted from the account? Our escape, escape goat, goat, right? Yeah. It was the escape goat. Yeah, yeah. The the goats running away. Or is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. So for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about um, scientific integrity. You know, integrity has a couple of meanings, right? It can mean just something holding together, but it also, I think, has this meaning of sort of something being morally or ethically right and following some kind of principle like that. And there's a, a paper, a really interesting paper that Robert Rosenthal published in 1994 that I think, you know, the some of the specific arguments um, are, it's 25 years ago, some of the specific arguments don't necessarily uh, apply today, but I think that the, we're going to talk a little bit about the paper, but also sort of jump off of it, because I think the general idea of what he's trying to do is to really encourage people to connect these methodological questions, how should you analyze your data, how should you plan what study to do, etc., to connect those with ethical principles, and to say, like, what should we be doing, what are the right things to be doing as scientists, and this article was the first time I saw anyone in writing make that connection. And, and uh, it really, the first time I saw this article, I think Brent Donilon was the one who pointed it out to me um, in a Twitter conversation. I was like, it just really, just merely asking the question really hit me pretty hard. It's like, wow, this, this takes on some issues that, that it like crystallizes them in a way that they've been floating around the edges of, of awareness or whatever. But um uh, so that's our topic for today. And Samin, you've mentioned before that like early in psychology's replicability discussion, like six, seven years ago, people were using the term scientific integrity to talk about what we were doing around replicability, and that sort of dropped off. Yeah. And I first, I think I was in favor of it dropping off. I thought it sounded moralistic and self-righteous. And then since then, I've come around to thinking that it, that really is at the core of a lot of the issues that we're struggling with as a field and that science struggles with. And I think we should be talking about it as an integrity issue, both in the scientific and quality sense, but also in the moral and ethical sense. Like, I think that you don't want to preach at people, but I do think we should be talking about the fact that as scientists, we have certain moral obligations. And I think all we teach about in our ethics sections of our classes to undergrad and grad students is about consent and deception, maybe one or two other things related to participants' rights. But even in the, under the umbrella of participants' rights, there's issues about like doing high-quality research. Like I think a lot of participants would be pissed if they thought that we were cherry-picking and file-drawing and p-hacking and so on. But then beyond our obligations to participants, we have a lot of other obligations as scientists. And I think it's kind of bad that we don't talk about that very much do you think that um the the term scientific integrity and just this idea of like the individual researchers integrity is like something that is particularly um it's like particularly unlikely to fly among social psychologists um because i think like historically social psychologists have sort of like not loved explanations that put like blame on individuals for being unethical right and like they you know the the field is founded on this idea that like instead we should be focusing on the like on how the situation like causes these kinds of behavior but just because 
it's we say that it's an issue of integrity doesn't mean it all has to be attributed to the researcher, right? It could be the integrity of the process. Yeah, um, okay, fair. And I, obviously it's some combination of the researcher's agency and decisions and the system that they're in and the checks and balances and so on. So if there's failures of integrity, it's never going to be completely, you know, the researcher's fault and it's never going to be completely not the researcher's fault or rarely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably part of, I mean, I don't know how much of it is specific to social psychology. I think it's going to be rare for any group to say we have an integrity problem within our group. Right. And, um, Maybe social yeah. are especially unlikely to frame it that way. I don't know, but I think it's partly just a wanting to frame it positively, wanting to avoid um, the impression that we're blaming anyone or shaming right. and so on. And I have a really hard time with like, yeah, like every almost every time I give a talk, someone raises their hand, and this happened yesterday, and says, yeah, but what do you think about all the blaming and shaming that happens on social media? Blah blah blah. And I always want to be like. Uh, depending on which version of it you're talking about, I might be in favor of it. I don't know. <laughs> I never have yeah. the guts to say that. But yeah, like I think we can definitely go too far with the moralistic self-righteousness and the like talk of integrity and all that. But I think we've swung too far in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's like a place for either pointing out an individual's lack of integrity or encouraging people to show more integrity yeah i think i wouldn't necessarily make a dispositional attribution because yeah it could be that somebody like just hasn't learned that what they're doing threatens the quality of their research and so therefore they're wasting their time they're wasting the participants time they're Mm -hmm. wasting the reviewers and editors time but those are moral that those have a moral dimension too so you could be making an ethically problematic decision or practicing ethically problematic behaviors without necessarily being super blameworthy or it being a fact about your character right Mm -hmm. so i think you could still place some of the cause on the agent without it being necessarily blameworthy and here i'm getting way outside my area of expertise of separating like moral responsibility from blame and from whatever but i think the i understand why people are really squeamish about putting blame on individual researchers when they're working in a system and so on but that shouldn't go so far as to let us forget or pretend that we don't have obligations and responsibilities as scientists. Like that's a really privileged role to have in society. We have a huge amount of public trust. We enjoy that. So, and we ask other people, we ask taxpayers for money. We ask participants for their time. We ask reviewers for their time. We ask a lot of other people. It's okay to talk about the fact that that comes with some responsibility. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think it's easier to talk about the positive end of it in or the what what are we doing right or what are we aspiring to do right in terms that start to approach values or morality than it is the negative end, right? So, you know, when people talk about like scientific reform as, you know, connecting, I mean, the you know, Strictly speaking, norms are can just be a description, right? When you talk about like the Mertonian norms, right? You could just say, well, these are just in some neutral way. These are the things that scientists are trying to do. But I think most scientists don't just say these are instrumental norms. They'd say that these are sort of value laden norms. These are positive. These are these are ought norms, not just is norms, right? And 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 when we talk about reform, we talk about trying to get to a better place where like, we all aspire for science to do these great things in the world. And, and that's a way to get people on board. And I think, I think it's harder when we talk about when science has gone wrong about it being a failure of integrity or a failure of an ethical obligation. That's, that's really where people get start to get touchy. And, and we construct these... And I don't know what the answer is, but we can we construct these narratives around that to try to excuse people, right? So the, um, I mean, I, I've, you know, I can't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast before. Sorry if I'm repeating myself, but like the the there's this narrative out there that that got formed around the same time I think Samin when when you know people were like briefly flirting with and then abandoning scientific integrity. This narrative of um, everyone was doing it, and nobody knew it was wrong, or nobody knew how wrong it was. And I think that is true for many people, or that's that's at least a defensible description for many people. Mm-hmm. But I, I I know that there are people out there who were talking about these 
issues like Rosenthal, that, that, <laughs> like Rosenthal, yeah, mm-hmm. who wrote this article that that you know prompted our discussion, like Jacob Cohen, and even some people today, and some people who um, I think have become well, they're you know uh, um, very embittered with the field. Um, they feel like they were doing this stuff all along, and and they were you know uh, um, and so when that narrative comes out of like nobody knew and everyone was doing it they're like no I knew and I wasn't doing it and they're sort of cut out of the narrative and and some people some people have you know sort of uh, been the bigger person and gone along with it um, I think more people have done that than the other but regardless of how people have responded that narrative cuts people out and I think there's something lost when we say when we all say we're all going to agree that nobody knew and everyone was doing it, I think we, we miss an opportunity to learn about why some people weren't doing it all along. We miss an opportunity to learn whether it's about them as people or whether it's about you know areas within psychology that were more robust or, or labs or teachings or whatever that made people more, more resilient to, the, to these external pressures. And, and that's something that I worry about cutting out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. The, in the Rosenthal article, he brings up uh, a point in the research process where I, I don't traditionally think about um, as being as having this really strong ethical dimension, but I think he has a really good point, um, and that is the selection of what we're going to do research on. So I think normally when I think of like ethics and doing research, I think about like how we're um, how we're like conducting our studies and reporting our results and maybe like ultimately how we're communicating them to the public and things like that. But I thought that like the questions that he raised about what is actually like a useful study to invest in were really interesting. And I think he makes the point that one thing that's really important is to do a study where you can answer the research question that you want to answer. So like we have a responsibility to make sure that the study that we do can actually address the question that we have. And it's not going to like fall far short of providing a satisfying answer, Um, which actually I think, although it sounds extremely obvious, is quite a high bar. Um, And I think implicit in that, he maybe doesn't say this explicitly, but this must be something that you have to consider is whether like a question is interesting and worthwhile, right? Because he does talk about like, the fact that there are limited resources and so resources that get put towards answering one question are unavailable to answer another question. Um, so yeah, I mean, that like raised a lot of questions for me in terms of what are the kinds of questions that A, we should be pursuing and B, we can actually right. answer. And in Which some ways, probably it's probably a, bit a negative scary. correlation between those two, right? Like the more right. important it is, probably the harder it is. I wrote a blog post called "Nothing Beats Something" about this, about like how like uh. there are probably a lot of cases where what it would take to study a question well is impossible, or or you're just not willing to do what it would take. Maybe it's literally impossible, maybe not. But then it's maybe better not to study that at all than to do a bad job. Like I've often used the rationale that, well, this is the best we can do, so that's what we're going to do. And it could be rationale for sample size. It could be rationale for your operationalization being pretty far from your construct. It could be rationale for a lot of things. Um, but I think we need to like really ask ourselves, like, is if this is the best I'm willing to do or I can do it, should I do it at all or should I move on to something else? And as you were talking, Alexa, I was wondering whether maybe some of the antipathy that some social psychologists have towards personality psychologists, and I'm just going to stipulate that there is some... Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if some of it is like, we're over here studying prejudice and you guys are fucking around with factor structure. Like right. what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think <laughs> yeah, that, I'm pretty uh, sure that's true that people think that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the, as much as there's questions and controversy about a lot of the more applied versions of personality psychology, I know like, People have critiqued some of, you know, James Heckman is an economist, and, and people have tried to critique some of that. People have critiqued some of Angela Duckworth's work on grit. But, it, like, there is a part of me that's like, hey, look, at least they're trying, you know, it, even, you know, I, when I say at least, I think I'm under, you know, I don't want to be dismissive of the actual substance of the work, right? But just on this agenda-setting level, at least they're trying to connect personality psychology to important consequential outcomes and like maybe like we can totally disagree or critique the whether the methods are good whether the results are good but let's recognize that 
they're picking worthwhile questions and that that's not something that personality psychology has always done. But, but then I think this brings in the other question, the other part of the, the, the issue that you framed, Alexa, which is like, and this goes to the some, nothing's better than something, is like, okay, those are worthy questions. But the, the question then becomes like, um, if the only way, and I, I, let me use a different example um, that maybe feels less charged to us, um, but any epidemiologist who listened to our show might uh, get mad at us, right? So let's, say, let's take the example of like, is eating chocolate good for your heart? Right. So in some sense, you could say, like, cardiac health is a really important topic and nutrition is a really important topic. That's a, that's in that really general sense, the worthy question. Right. But if the best you can do is either an observational study that you really can't draw causal conclusions. And Rosenthal is very big on causism. Right. And this sort of like people drawing bad causal conclusions. So like if the best you can do is a study that's not going to be very good at supporting causal conclusions or a very small experimental study where you're you have like 30 people eating chocolate in each condition Mm -hmm. and it has no hope of detecting a plausible effect size um then then the question becomes even if in the abstract that's a worthy question i think this is and and this is something where like i don't think we we really ask this question enough which is like is it less ethical to do that study badly than to not do it at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the th- bad things about Rosenthal's paper is that he uses, he puts so much face in meta-analysis to salvage that. So I think mm-hmm. someone who read that paper might say, yeah, it's fine to do a bunch of kind of crappy studies on that topic because the meta-analysis will determine and like just kick the can down the road and say, well, mm-hmm. in the long run, all of that evidence together will be high quality, which I think we now have a much, much better sense of why that's problematic, that you can't extract good information out of a bunch of small bad studies yeah and i think this is this is also why this is one of the difficulties in connecting ethics to research practice is that that this paper was written 25 years ago and i think what rosenthal said about meta-analysis 25 years ago was not only consistent with what people thought at the time but was actually progressive relative to what people were doing and thinking at the time and so this raises to me a really complicated question, which is we now understand meta-analysis very differently in 2019. But it's not that complicated. It's just and, garbage in, garbage out. How could he? But but I think that uh, you know, I th- and, you know Rosenthal wrote about the file drawer effect. Mm-hmm. I think he thought at the time his good faith reading was that that meta-analysis could deal with those right, biases right. in a way that we now are less likely to think. And so this is the like. This is the one of the challenges is that even if the in the abstract you say yes good methods have an ethical dimension to them our particular technical understanding of what's good methods evolves over time and if we're and I think people to me I, like I feel even if I'm willing in the abstract to say there's a connection like to actually condemn a particular study because of the method it uses because I think that's a good me- a bad method or to say this other one's good I, I've been around long enough to see the zeitgeist on methods change. But we have um, to and, do that, even though yeah. we know it's going to change, right? I mean, yeah. I just read a tweet about that this morning, that we have to have those hard conversations. When people say, well, study A shows a positive effect and study B shows zero effect, and everyone throws up their hands and is like, well, both sides. And it's like, wait, but study A was tiny, not transparently reported, no documentation of their plan, and a p-value of 0.04, and study B had all the opposite characteristics. That's not a both sides situation. And maybe in 15 years, we'll see that there were problems with study B that study A didn't have. But we have to go with our best judgment now and be able to like hash it out and say, you know, that there has to be some kind of ability to reach a consensus about which studies are better. And uh, yeah, I agree that Rosenthal thought he was doing that at the time and he was doing it according to the best evidence he had. I'm just, it's kind of amazing to me that it took us this long to figure out that meta-analysis is way, way harder than we thought it was. And I, I don't think we've really figured it out yet. I think we're still in for a rude awakening about just how little we can extract from a biased literature and meta-analysis. Yeah, but I think that the, the, the way that meta-analysis was in advance was that prior to it, people were doing box score mm-hmm. of significance, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in the, in the history of it, saying we should cumulatively analyze studies together rather than doing a box score of significance mm-hmm. that was an advance yeah, and I yeah. think we're not going to go back to where it was before so that was progress yeah. but to me the, it's the difference between saying 
I think, you know, like doing meta-analysis is more ethical than not doing a meta-analysis, right? So assigning a, a sort of ethical value to a method versus not, that's where it's a problem. Yeah. Versus I think what you're talking about, Samin, which is just we should be willing to connect the conversation. So the ethical thing to do is to ask whether this is yeah. the best method we have available. Um, the answers to that might change as a result of our technical understanding. But uh, this would be the better version of the argument, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think that you know, as much as we can critique what Rosenthal was saying 25 years ago for how it looks now, I, I, this is why I like the article, is the fact that he was just challenging us to, to make the connection because a lot of people would just say, no, this is just purely a like statistics question or this is just purely a math or analytical mm-hmm. or logical question rather than that this is a value-laden question. He also said a lot of things that were way ahead of his time, just for the yeah. record. I did yes. that. <laughs> do you think that, um, okay, so do you think that differences in people's views on any of these kinds of like replicability types of issues or questions, do you think that those differences can be connected to differences in values or do you think that I think it's can, more like people are less committed to values or i don't know i see at least among earlier career people i think there's a strong correlation with how much they've thought about these things and i do think that getting people to mm-hmm. think about ethical obligations that they have in their professional role can be very productive because at least speaking for myself like i just hadn't thought about it for so long and I didn't realize how many ethical dimensions there were to my work. Even things yeah. like accepting a grant or accepting an award, depending on who it's coming from and what they're going to use your name for and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. I've had so many ethical dilemmas that I, I would never have imagined a job as an academic would entail so many ethical dilemmas. So just getting mm-hmm. people to think, especially early in their career, about do you think there's an ethical angle here? Like, have you thought about what if every scientist did this and what would mm-hmm. happen? Or, you know, I think... It's not necessarily that like people with different views on replicability have different levels of morality. I don't believe that at all. But that no. some people have have thought about it at a, in a position where they could really have an open mind. I think sometimes when you've gone too far in your career, it's very, very hard to think about whether something you've been doing for decades with a, in good faith could maybe have a negative ethical component. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's another... Um so I mentioned that like I thought it was interesting that that Rosenthal mentioned the initial step of deciding what you're going to do research on as as like an ethical question, and I would also take that one step further, um, and this is something that I think I've thought about, but that also doesn't often get talked about in these kinds of conversations is just like what the best use of our time as individuals is, right? So yeah, I mean if it's the case that you as an individual um, can't answer questions that are important in a satisfying way, um, then now, like, what is the most useful way to, um, to spend your time? And yeah, I mean, I don't have any good answers to that, but. um, Yeah, I mean, I have. Yeah. uh, Oh, uh, yeah. I, I think this is, this is, this is where it gets really like, in the general sense, connecting this stuff to ethics, I'm totally on board with. But the when you start getting into these questions of like how to do that, that's where it gets so complicated, right? So, so I think the to me, there's a tension between what are individual obligations and what are things that we should be either making possible collectively or even enforcing collectively, right? So, I have a very strong negative feeling about telling people that what they're choosing to study is an ethical or unethical choice because you know other ethical Mm -hmm. principles like academic freedom come in because limitations to our ability to identify because underrepresented people often choose unpopular topics that are that need to be studied but if we had some social mechanism that told them they couldn't study that that would be a problem so there's that on the one hand and then on the other hand there's the fact that like people aren't going to be ethical on their own and we need to put people in circumstances that activate their disposition to do ethical things and that don't activate or contain their disposition to pursue competing interests you know non-scientific or unethical interests 
Um, and so I think that I don't have like an answer to that. Um, I, I don't, um, I mean, I think to some extent, like the way we do things now, right. Is we don't tell individual scientists outside of like extreme bounds of like harming people or whatever, but in Mm -hmm. terms of just like choosing topics, we don't tell people individually what they can or can't do, but we make those decisions once removed by deciding who to give jobs to and by deciding, through our grant agencies, what gets funded and yeah. what doesn't. And those are ethical, ethically laden decisions because they have the same implications. They're just not about telling somebody what to do. So I sort of feel like having a system where like once somebody's hired and in a job, we give them a lot of autonomy to decide what to pursue and how to pursue it, but that we're shaping that through these sort of once removed processes that, that, does put the ethical obligation now not on wagging your finger at somebody and saying yeah this right. is a good or bad study to run but at at you know like how ethical are those institutions that are putting people into those positions mm-hmm. yeah i wonder how the decision making happens i mean some of it is like congress at least in the u.s like congress putting more or less money towards certain branches of science and things like that so if they decided that depression and anxiety was a really big problem and put a ton of money towards it, then there would be more people studying depression and anxiety. I wonder, to the extent that those are deliberate decisions, it would be interesting to be in the shoes of someone having to decide that. Like, how do you weigh, you know, 10 studies on depression and anxiety versus one study on something that has no immediate application and is more basic science? Um, I would have, a, I would find that so hard to decide to take money away from something that's like a really really big problem in society and put it towards not i would i would i would not put that second category at zero but i don't know how to decide what it should be yeah right Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that the you know yeah like we have a it's like there and there's so many layers of like information and also shielding from information right so like we have we're in you know, we have a political process that elects people to Congress and those people allocate money and, and they're supposed to make broad strategic decisions, but the, but Congress isn't supposed to be deciding on specific grants. And when they do, when they've tried to defund specific grants, the scientific community pushes back and they say, look, you know, like your responsibility is for setting general priorities and, and our responsibility is for interpreting them into the more specifics. So, you know, we've got a system that tries to do that and, and there's always a tension of like where where do we draw those lines to, you know, where where does the like political process have a legitimate, you know, in a democracy have a legitimate voice and where is it like, you know, it's deciding, you know, because certain topics that are incredibly important from a scientific perspective are politically unpopular and so if you do human sexuality research you know you can you can look at and like aids research you know was a really important example of that where like if you're ta- you know if you're looking at human lives and you can say this actually has a really important impact on human health and there's something important we need to understand in a political process that's refusing to recognize that for for other reasons mm-hmm. i have a question for you guys have you ever been at a point where you're deciding what your next project is going to be and there's like something that you really want to do but it feels frivolous and then something else that you're like I don't really want to do this but it would actually be more useful to society do you ever feel an ethical pull when choosing a study to run or a research topic um I don't I don't often feel maybe this is bad like a a sense that there's like a question that I could investigate that would be like really important and that it would be a little bit more boring, but that I should do it. Um, but I do have the other concern sometimes that like, I'll have an idea that I like think would be interesting and feasible and fun to run. But then I wonder, like I worry about, I think maybe I worry about like whether I can like even provide a really compelling answer to that question sometimes you know um so I worry about whether the question is important enough and also whether I can provide a good answer um because I think it is really really hard to provide good answers to questions I rarely have like 
um, access to a really like perfect sample to test questions. Um, often I would prefer to have a larger sample. Um, there's always like severe limitations on the generalizability of the methods that I use. Like sometimes it, yeah, it feels like pretty challenging to, um, yeah, to, to make it worthwhile. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever been in like the canonical version of what you're describing, Samin, but I, I do feel like when I have ideas that like the initial appeal is a feeling of that would be cool, that would be neat, mm-hmm. whatever. What I try to push myself to do is to like, can I find some importance or gravitas in this, right? And some sometimes it's just thinking about it and like, being like, oh yeah, my, my emotional reaction was... Because that that is also an important question, and other times though it's like, oh, I could develop this idea and sort of move it in a direction to try to connect it to something important or consequential. Mm-hmm. So it's not just gee whiz neato, but it's also gee whiz neato that has this important implication. Um, I try really hard not to work on things that I'm not excited to work on because mm-hmm. the the that's not the, part of that. Well, it, it's selfish in two ways. One, it's just hedonically selfish but it's also selfish in the sense that i know i won't actually end up working very hard on it and i'll you know uh yeah so so that that to me is less of a dilemma it's more like if i was faced with the two things you mentioned to me that's like well i I would know that i'm not actually going to do the thing i'm not excited about anyway so i might as well if i was a forced Mm -hmm. choice i might as well do the other one but yeah no i i I think it's, I th- you know, I think it's, it's, it's always an important exercise with a new idea to try to figure out, like, why is this important? Yeah. Um, but I think we're also, like, part of it is, I mean, I think the, this way of framing it is, you know, like, what it's leaving out, and, and sometimes this is more important than others, is, is that, but in some sense, we're always answerable to other people's ideas about it anyway, right? Like, you have to... You have to think about, like, I'm going to have to publish this at some point. I'm going to have to persuade somebody else. If it's something that would require funding or resources or collaborators, you have to persuade other people to work on it with you. You have to persuade people to give you money. So that sort of forces you to think about that. I feel like if I think about the people (laughs) I know who I think the most highly of, who I think have the most potential as researchers, when I think about them, I feel like I would be disappointed if they took all that skill and all that everything they have and put it towards a frivolous question but mm-hmm. I never apply that to myself and maybe that's just like <laughs> I don't put myself in that category but I don't experience this conundrum of like wait before I do this thing is it too frivolous or whatever to be worth doing and I think it's especially tempting to it's easy to slide into that because I mostly analyze secondary data usually my own but I we you know we spend five or 10 years collecting a data set and then we reuse it over and over again. So if someone comes along and is like, I wonder if this is associated with that, we're like, oh, we can test that, let's just do it. And we don't like stop to think about, wait, okay, but if we do that, that's X many hours we're not spending on something else. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should actually pause at least for a minute and think about what's the best use of our time and what do we owe society or our participants or somebody else, you know, anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have another question for you guys. So um, I'm wondering what you guys think about the like rhetorical value of um, of communicating like research questions about like research practices and things like that in either like like an ethical um, frame or a non-ethical frame. So so maybe like the question is, is is it rhetorically more useful to talk about the um, the replication crisis as scientific integrity or not. And I guess my initial thoughts are like the benefits of framing it as um, an integrity issue are that in some ways it is exciting to be like involved in something that is deeply important in that way and to to be like working on our integrity and stuff like that. And then I think of course the maybe the negative side is that it's more threatening to think of it as an attack on integrity if people are not you know, already like up to speed and things like that. My impression is that I think we need both. And I feel like that's kind of what we've accidentally fallen into as a group is that we do a good cop, bad cop routine. So there's the Mm. people saying it's super easy. It's just about the superficial behavior. Just learn OSF, just learn blah, blah, blah. It doesn't say anything about you as a person. 
Right. And then there's the other set of people, and I would put myself in the second group. And yeah. Say, Wake up, people! Like this is a yeah. crisis, and blah blah blah. Um, right. And I kind of think we don't actually disagree. It's more like the personalities of the speakers, and, and it reaches different audiences, and it reaches audiences sometimes even the same audience member might be more receptive to one or the other or whatever. It might motivate different kinds of behaviors. Both are true, I think, even though that seems inconsistent. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's also like an inside-outside difference, right? Like when we talk to each other within the field, we tend to be really careful about talking about uh, the sort of ethical side of things because we we don't want to put people on the defense. It's all those reasons why we didn't latch on to integrity, right? We don't want to put people on the defensive. We want them to feel validated in doing something, so we want to feel like we're activating their positive instincts and not condemning their negative ones, right? But then when you talk to students or you talk to people outside of science and you talk about what's going on, and yeah. it's just like you can't not talk about it in these terms because they they just they see right through that. Yeah, they and, see and, that immediately, and they're like, yeah, and they're like, oh yeah. my gosh, don't you realize that this is like an issue of your integrity? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so it's like, and then you know it it, it and it you know you yeah at a certain point it feels like you're just like if you're apologizing for, you know, or if you're making excuses or I guess is a better term for it, then, then you just start to feel like a doofus because it's like, no, okay, I can't keep this up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, should we end there? That sounds like, yeah, I can't keep this up. I'm a doofus. <laughs> it's a good place to end. All right, cool. Well, let's just well, uh, end all of our segments on Sanjay's uh, expressions of uncertainty and inadequacy today. It's a it's a very it's a very reliable opportunity that will come up again and again. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening to the Black Goats, and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.